And so turn with me to Colossians chapter 3 as we revisit uh, these wonderful words that we've been studying over the past several months now. And whether you realize it or not, you have a perspective on life that shapes every decision you make and every opinion that you hold. This perspective is what we call a worldview. The definition of a worldview, according to Webster's Dictionary, is a comprehensive conception or apprehension of the world, especially from a specific standpoint. Basically, our worldview is the lens through which we view and interpret circumstances and events that take place around us. And there is no person on the planet that is exempt from having a worldview. There is no such thing as pure objectivity. All of us are motivated and driven by certain perspectives and presuppositions. This is why we have things like political parties, for example. You might ask the question, how can two people view the exact same circumstance and yet come up with polar opposite evaluations or responses? It's because they view life through a certain worldview that dictates how to interpret those circumstances. Now, as a Christian, we don't have the liberty of just making up any worldview that we would like. As Christians, we are necessarily bound to a worldview that's dictated by the Word of God. Our worldview has as its standard every word on the pages of Scripture. And so that, in the comprehensive sense, is our worldview. It's the Bible. But we could even shrink that down to a single truth statement. If you want to know what the Christian worldview hinges on, it hinges on this statement. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And that truth is the truth through which we filter everything we see, everything that happens to us, and the decisions that we make accordingly. Jesus Christ is Lord is the mantra of every Christian. It has been since the earliest days of the Christian church. And Paul says that one day every intelligent created being will say this confession. He tells us this in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, right after that wonderful description of how Christ humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. He says, for this reason also, God highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Christian then is one who has come to embrace that and to, to accept that Jesus Christ is in fact not only our Savior who rescued us from our sins, but he is Lord, he is King, he is Master. Now in our text today, Paul is going to continue to show us how this marvelous truth of the Lordship of Christ is to affect everything about us. Regardless of our social status, regardless of our place in this world, we are to live our lives by this overarching truth, Jesus Christ is Lord. Today we close up our, our multi-week study on the Christian household or the Christian family and you'll remember that, that Paul's given us instructions really to the, the key 
family groups or relationships within the family and how we're to respond to one another. You'll see those there on the screen. He's spoken to wives and husbands, to children and parents, and to slaves and masters, which we've said before was, was a common aspect of a household during Paul's day, which is why he includes that relationship. Let's look at our text together just by way of context. Let's begin back in verse 18 of chapter 3, and we'll read all the way through verse 1 of chapter 4. Colossians 3, verse 18 says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Paul has broken the family down into these three groups that we've already seen. He begins with the one who is under authority in that relationship and then moves to the one who is called to lead. We've already seen the roles of wives and husbands, children and parents, and we began last time we were in Colossians to look at God's instruction for Christian slaves. We're going to continue that today and as well as look at God's instruction to masters in verse one of chapter four. Now, if you weren't here last time, I, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to that message because it, it directly ties into this message and lays the context for today. Specifically, at the beginning of that message, I dealt with the history of slavery as an institution, particularly during Paul's day. What was it like and how it was different than the kind of slavery that has rightly been abolished in our nation. I won't be able to go back through all of that, so I encourage you to go back and look at that, but I do want to mention a couple of things. We saw clearly in the scriptures that slavery that came from kidnapping someone against their will and enslaving them was clearly condemned in the scriptures, which of course was how the slavery was built in this country. Thankfully, it's been abolished and is no more. Also, slavery at that time, at Paul's day, had nothing to do with ethnicity. It, did, it had nothing to do with the color of your skin. You could see a person just, just like you could be a slave for various reasons. And so because of that, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. And, and here's why this matters. Because as difficult as it is for us, we have to set aside our own cultural history as it relates to slavery and view this through the lens of the Apostle Paul and his time period. Because if we don't, we're going to miss some very important spiritual realities that Paul builds off of this slave-master relationship. In discussing slaves and masters, Paul's concern, as, as is always true, is their spiritual 
lives, their spiritual maturity, their relationship to Christ, and how that infiltrates the way they think about their role in society. And so we, we can't shy away from using terms like slave and master, because that's what Paul does to make a very important point for us today. In fact, there's a word play in the Greek language that's very difficult to bring into the English with the word master or lord. When we read the text in English, it seems as if Paul's making a, a switch between the word master to refer to earthly masters and the word Lord to refer to Christ as our heavenly master. But actually, the Greek word's exactly the same. You might think of it this way. If you've ever watched a, a, a British film that is set back during the British aristocracy, they did this all the time. They would use the word Lord to refer to the master of a house and then turn right around and use the word Lord to refer to the Lord God. That's what's happening here in Greek. It's the same word, but the context changes the emphasis of the word. And that's very, very intentional by Paul because he's, he's constantly wanting to bring us back to the fact that all of us, no matter what our role in society is, live under one true Lord or master who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that infiltrates this entire passage. And so we're going to look at the rest of Paul's instruction to Christian slaves, and then we'll finally make our way to verse four or verse one of chapter four and see his instruction to masters. Let me bring you up to speed on what we saw last time. This, this text, the, the verses geared towards Christian slaves, really hinge on three commands that Paul gives to them. And from those commands, we see that Paul is giving them a perspective about life. We've seen two aspects of that perspective already. Aspect number one, a Christian perspective of human authority. Aspect number two, a Christian perspective of earthly work. And here is the theme of what Paul says to Christian slaves. Christians are slaves of Christ and therefore must serve earthly authorities with integrity and diligence for his glory. You can see that there are implications already in the text for us today, even though thankfully we are not slaves and not living in that sort of institution, all of us are under different kinds of human authority. And so there are direct correlations for how we're to think about those relationships as we look at this relationship. When it comes to a Christian perspective of earthly work, Paul gave us three qualities, three qualities that should describe the way we work as Christians. First of all, it should be from the heart, he said. Secondly, it should be for the Lord. Ultimately, we serve Christ. No matter what your job is, you are there as a servant of Christ, and therefore, we are to do it with our full heart. And then finally, the third quality is it's for eternal reward. It's God ultimately who gives eternal rewards to his children, the ultimate reward, of course, being eternal life. Those are the first two aspects, the first two aspects of the perspective that Paul is calling us to have. That brings us now to our text for today, which is right towards the end of his instructions to Christian slaves, the, the second half of verse 24, and this is the third aspect that we're going to be looking at a Christian perspective of serving Christ. A Christian perspective of serving Christ. Look back at the text, Colossians 3, verse 24, and we're gonna to go to the very end of that verse, the second half of the verse. The New American Standard says, it is the Lord Christ 
whom you serve. And remember, this is in the flow of these other commands, that they are to, to obey their earthly masters, they're to do their work heartily, and now we come to this command, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Now, here's what's interesting. This is one of those rare cases in the Greek language where a, a verb could be translated in two different ways. I'm going to get into grammar just a little bit. The homeschool moms will be excited. Everyone else won't. So the, it can be an indicative statement. That is a statement of fact, right? And that's how they have it translated here. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. It's an indicative. But this verb can also be translated as an imperative. And I believe that's the better translation of what Paul intends here. If we translate this as an imperative, it would read like this. Be slaves of the Lord Christ. Be slaves of the Lord Christ. Now, the ultimate meaning doesn't change if it's an indicative or an imperative, but the emphasis certainly does. And there's a reason that I think it should be translated this way, and, and we won't go into too much detail, but I do want to show you this in the text. So far, Paul has given two commands, and each of those commands are then followed by modifying statements, explanatory statements. Each time he gives an explanatory statement, he introduces that explanation with a word like for or knowing. It's either a, a preposition, a conjunction, or a participle. But, but some word that makes it clear that I've made a command, and now I'm going to explain that command. The point is, when he gets to this phrase in verse 24... He doesn't begin with the word for, he doesn't begin with the participle, he, he goes right into it like he does the other commands. And it makes it clear then that the force of this text or this verse is to be a command just like the other two. So we have the first command, obey your masters. The second command, do your work heartily. And now we have a third command, be slaves of the Lord Christ. There are a lot of thoughts on why translators do not translate it as a command, but I had one commentator say that while this is the more faithful translation, it is a, it's a sensitive subject to command us to be slaves in our culture, and so it shied away from. But this is the command, be slaves of the Lord or Master Christ. Now, this is important for us because what Paul is doing is he's telling these Christian slaves, now just imagine yourself, pretend that you're back in Paul's day and, and you are a slave. You are under the authority of another. You live they, as their slave and they are your earthly master. This is Paul telling these Christian slaves that they need to have an eternal perspective rather than a temporal perspective. And he does that by turning their attention to the fact that ultimately, yes, they are slaves, but of Christ. That's how they need to think of themselves. Yes, they have an earthly master, and therefore there are certain roles that they should keep. They should work heartily. They should obey him. But ultimately, Paul says, be slaves of Christ. And that command goes far beyond just these Christian slaves into our lives as well. Be slaves of the Lord Christ. You know, many Christians mistakenly think that salvation is freedom from every form of bondage or enslavement. That's actually not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches something far better than just self-autonomy. God does not just free us from sin and then say, figure it out. You're now on your own. 
That's not what it says. It says, yes, we are freed from the bondage of sin, from the bondage of Satan, but then we are called into submission to a new master who is Christ. We are always slaves of something or someone. You're either a slave of sin and the devil, or you are a slave of righteousness and the Lord Jesus Christ, but there is no middle. Those are the two options. And so the call of the gospel then is not a call to just come and be freed and live autonomously, but to come and be freed from the bondage of sin and come to a new master who is good and kind and full of grace and who provides for you the thing that you don't have, righteousness. That's the good news of the gospel. Let me show you this in a familiar text in John chapter 11. John chapter 11, verse 28 to 30 says, Come to me, this is Jesus speaking, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Don't miss the significance of what Jesus just said there. He refers to this idea of a yoke. Now, we don't probably, probably never used a yoke, but a yoke, think of a, a piece of wood with holes cut out for an animal's neck, and they would place that on, on two oxen usually that would bind them together, and then the, the master could drive those oxen to plow a field or pull a cart or what have you. But the yoke represented the fact that that animal was under the authority and control of their master. What Jesus is saying here is you've been under a yoke, an impressive, uh, oppressive yoke of legalism, of, of, right, of, of self-righteousness. The Pharisees had been teaching that in order to be right with God, you had to do all of these things and to make yourself righteous. And that was oppressive. Some of you may be living under that this morning, trying to make yourself right before God. And perhaps you're realizing, I can't do this. And you're right, you can't. And that's what Jesus is saying. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavily laden. You're, you're, you're burdened down by this yoke of legalism. But he doesn't say, and I will just throw off your yoke. He says, come to me and take my yoke upon you. Come and take a new yoke. And here's the description of the yoke of Christ, the, the authority of Christ. He says it is, it is easy. His burden is light. And those who take that yoke upon them find themselves belonging to a master who describes himself as gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's the good news of the gospel. It's not just autonomy. It's belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a gospel of grace. You see, that is what we need. We desperately need righteousness, but we cannot be righteous. And so we need the righteousness of another. That's what Jesus offers when he says, come to me and take my yoke upon you. We have a new master. Before we move on this morning, I have to stop and ask, is that the gospel that you have believed, that you have come to embrace? Have you come to recognize that you cannot make yourself right before God by your own actions, by your own efforts? Have you recognized your sinfulness before God, your need of a savior, your need of grace, your need of righteousness, but it must be the righteousness of another? 
and that Jesus Christ has perfectly provided that righteousness by his perfect life. And then he died on the cross as a sacrifice to pay for your sins and rose again victorious over the grave and over death. And he offers to you this morning that if you will turn from your sin, placing your faith in Jesus Christ, coming to him not just as an addition to your life, not just the the last little piece of the puzzle, but coming to him and saying, I desperately need Christ and Christ alone, and I will submit to him now as the Lord of my life. Have you come to that Jesus in that way? That is the gospel of grace. And it stands as an offer to you this morning if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. This idea of salvation, including a change of masters that motivates the the command, be slaves of Christ, is is seen in other places. I want to read from Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 15. Listen to this interchange that takes place when we come to Christ. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. But do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, listen to this, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in salvation. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now... Having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, bringing this full circle back to Colossians, let's tie this together. What Paul is saying to these Christian slaves in Colossae and even to us today is that our enslavement to the Lord Jesus Christ is to inform and motivate the way we live our earthly lives. Everything about the way you live and operate in this world is to be driven by this great reality that you are a slave of Christ. Last time we saw that the most obvious connection between Paul's instruction to these Christian slaves and to us today is that of our earthly work and our employment. And so ask yourself, do I work heartily as unto the Lord because ultimately I see myself as a slave of Christ and what I do matters if I do it from the heart as unto him and for his glory? But now moving on from the command itself, be slaves of the Lord Christ, Paul explains why. Why is it so important that we think of ourselves this way? Look back at the text now in verse 25. It begins here with the word for, that is he's going to explain the reason why. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. 
Now, we might be tempted to read this verse and think that Paul is saying that these slaves will receive consequences from their earthly masters if they disobey. But we can't do that because the context simply won't allow it. This word for directly modifies or explains the command, be slaves of Christ. So he says, be slaves of Christ because essentially if you disobey, you'll receive consequences for the wrong that you have committed. These then are consequences that are given out by the Lord Jesus Christ. They are, he's referring to sins against Jesus in the way that we carry ourselves through this earthly life. And notice that these consequences, that very last statement in verse 25, they will be without partiality. Without partiality. You see, as human beings, we are tempted to show partiality based on external factors. We may give someone a pass when they sin because they're poor and we feel sorry for them in their poverty, or we may give someone a pass in their sin because they're rich and we want to be in their good graces. But we can be tempted on either side of that equation. But what Paul says is that God is never tempted to be partial towards you or anyone else based on external factors. Your social status matters zero to him when it comes to defining sin and holding us accountable. He's not tempted in those ways like we are. What that means for us this morning, the application is the fact that that sin is never justified in the eyes of God, no matter what your earthly status or life circumstance may be. God holds us accountable for sin, whether we're in difficult circumstances, whether we're even in unjust circumstances, when we've been sinned against, when, if we're poor, if we're rich, the list goes on and on. Sin in God's eyes is never justified. And just to drive home the point, remember who he's talking to here when he says God shows no partiality. He's talking to slaves, those on the lowest rung of the social ladder. He says, even for, for you, If you choose to rebel against your ultimate master, the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be consequences for that sin. This is not a justification of the the master's sinful behavior that may have provoked a response from these slaves. Rather, it is a call to obey out of obedience, love, and worship for Christ himself. This has such practical implications for us, if you think about it. As Christians, we have a new nature. We talk about this a lot. We have a new nature that's now committed to righteousness, that does not, desires righteousness, but we also have a flesh, don't we? That part of us that's yet to be redeemed, and all day long, that new nature and that flesh go head to head, and they battle it out. This is the battle with sin that, that Paul describes in places like Romans chapter 7. One of the most common manifestations of that battle of the, of the new nature in the flesh is the desire to justify our own sin based on our circumstances. To justify sin is to convince yourself that it's okay for you to disobey God's clear instructions in a certain instance because there are external factors in your circumstance that make that situation unique. So, You understand that under normal circumstances, it would be sinful for me to do this thing, but my circumstances aren't normal. They're more difficult than normal. And so therefore, it's either justifiable or at least understandable that I 
acted the way I did. The only problem is Paul says that is a lie. That is not how God sees sin. Again, life circumstance is a temptation for us. If we, if we perceive that our life circumstance is, is unjust or unfair or just we're, we're loaded down with trials and difficulties, we are tempted to think that in that instance it's okay to respond sinfully. But we have to remember again the original recipients. These are slaves, have very little rights, lowest of the low. I think we could all say that's a difficult circumstance to be in. Whatever your situation is now, if you had to trade your situation for being a slave, I think you would hold on to whatever you got right now. And yet Paul says, be slaves of the Lord Christ because he's the ultimate judge and he shows no partiality. You know, we're never more tempted to justify our sin than when we're sinned against. In your marriage, when your spouse sins against you and you feel that, that inner temptation to respond in turn, Paul's instruction here is that if you do that, you are not guiltless in your sin. At work, when you're overlooked for that promotion that you deserve, that you earned, or, or you're slandered falsely by a coworker, and, and so it's your desire internally to rise up and slander their name in return, Paul says, you're in sin if you do that. Their sin does not justify yours. And you might say, well, well, well why? That just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. It goes back to that command. Be slaves of the Lord Christ. We are not only slaves, but disciples, and the Bible says even sons and daughters of God. And therefore, we are his representatives. And so our character is to match his character in increasing measure throughout this life. And how is it that our master responded when he was reviled, when he was sinned against, when he was overlooked, when he was falsely accused? Peter tells us, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, For you've been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Understand, Paul is not being calloused or hard-hearted towards your circumstances. Some of you have experienced devastating trials and difficulties in your life. Paul, Paul's not belittling those things. Neither is our Lord with these commands. Instead, he is saying, even though you have walked through such difficulty, follow the pattern of your Savior. Because here's the thing, the darker your circumstances are, the brighter the gospel shines when you live the truths of the gospel and follow the pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have been sinned against and you have literally been trampled on and slandered and treated falsely, remember what the Bible says. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Romans 12, 17 to 21, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. 
Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. There is no injustice in this life, no sin that will go unpunished. It will either be punished by that individual sinner experiencing the wrath of God forever, or it will be punished in the person of Jesus Christ if that person repents and believes. But no sin will go unpunished. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. The gospel is literally at stake, Christian. And this is why Paul commands these slaves to be slaves of Christ and to recognize that he is the ultimate master and it's with him that they ultimately will will deal if they choose to disobey. So let me just ask you this morning, have you been justifying sin because of unjust or difficult circumstances in your life? If the answer is yes, then the response is clear. Humble yourself before a holy and just God. Repent of your sin and throw yourself on the mercy of God and trust him with your circumstance and he will care for all of those details. You simply be faithful and obey. Now I want to handle one quick question that may have come up in your mind as I talk about these Christian slaves experiencing consequences for their sin from the Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes we get confused about that because after all, Romans 8, 1 says there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what are these consequences that we're talking about that these Christians will receive from their Lord Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, yes, that is absolutely right. We, we as believers cannot, will not lose our salvation because God sovereignly will hold us. He will hold us fast. He will keep us. But The Bible is clear that there are kinds of consequences that a Christian can experience in this life. I'm not going to go through these in detail, but I just want to give them to you with some references to look up later. Here are three kinds of consequences that a believer may experience because of prolonged sin in their life. The first one is divine discipline. See this in places like Hebrews 12, verses 4 to 11, 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 30. The Bible says God disciplines those whom he loves. And he does that in various ways. But if you are a true child of God and you persist in sin, he will discipline you to bring you back to himself. The Bible is clear about that. A second kind of consequence a believer may experience are what I've called natural consequences. There are some references there. That is, God doesn't shield you from the natural consequences that come from your sin. For example, a Christian may break the law. They may sin and break the law and have to go to jail to pay for that. God's not going to break you out of jail, but he will forgive you for your sin. Sometimes we experience natural consequences. Then finally, the loss of eternal reward. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 describes this this idea that that whatever is done selfishly or with wrong motives or sinfully uh, will be burned up. You'll have no reward for those things in eternity. Those are some of the ways that a Christian might receive consequences for prolonged sin. And I believe those are the kinds of things Paul mentions here when he says these slaves are to be slaves of Christ and that ultimately they'll be judged by him if they don't. Now finally, this turns us 
to chapter 4, verse 1, where we see Paul give instructions to masters. What was a, a Christian master to think about? How was he to live his life in, in, in regard to those under his charge? Well, let's look at Colossians 4, verse 1. Paul says, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Here is the, the main idea that Paul's getting across here. Christians are slaves of Christ, as we've said. Therefore, they must exercise earthly authority with equity and humility. In his instruction to these masters, Paul gives one overarching command and one powerful perspective. We'll begin with this overarching command. Here's the command that he gives to Christian masters, rule with equity, rule with equity or fairness. He says, masters, grant to your slaves. That word grant is the command. It's a present middle imperative. We talked about the, the middle voice in the past, but the middle voice in Greek brings emphasis to that person as the one carrying out the action. So we could translate it this way. Masters, you yourselves grant to your slaves or see to it. The idea is the emphasis is on these masters must see to it that they grant something to those that are under their charge. And Paul says there are two qualities that these authorities must grant to those under their charge and it is justice and fairness. Grant to your slaves justice and fairness. Those are two words that can be used interchangeably in the scriptures and it just refers to just and fair treatment. D treat them right in the eyes of God, recognizing that they are equal image bearers of God. They are not less than you because you're the master and they are the slave. And to treat them as God's child, one who God has created, one who God has made. The idea is there should be a difference. In, in that day, there should have been a, a dramatic difference between a Christian master and an unbelieving master. In the same way that today there should be a difference in a Christian boss and a Christian business owner and a Christian father and an unbelieving boss or an unbelieving business owner or an unbelieving father. The transforming power of the gospel is to have an effect on all of us regardless of our station in life. These masters were not to abuse their authority in the way that they treated these that were under their care. How might they have been tempted to abuse their authority? Well, Paul explains that a little further in the parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 6. Remember, Ephesians written from the same jail cell, and so that much of the information overlaps. This is what he says to the Ephesians in verse 9, and masters do the same things to them and give up threatening give up threatening. That word threatening is very helpful for us to understand how these masters might have been tempted to use and abuse their authority over their slaves. A Christian leader, hear me now, if you're in any form of authority, a Christian leader is not to use threats of violence or retribution as a form of coercion or keeping control. That's the idea but instead to treat those under your charge with fairness, with equity. When we apply this to our own setting, we have to be careful not to use threats to manipulate 
Instead, our leadership must model the gracious, patient leadership of God towards us, his children. If we have any doubt of the kind of relationship that Paul is calling these masters to have with their slaves, then we need to look no further than Paul's letter to Philemon. This is why we began the service with Philemon. You may not realize this, but there is a direct connection between the letter to Philemon and the letter to the Colossians. In fact, Paul writes that from the same prison cell, and as it turns out, Onesimus is actually there with Paul. And he sends the letter back to Philemon with Onesimus and another man named Tychicus. They take the letter back to Philemon, who is in Colossae. Onesimus is from Colossae. Somehow, in God's providence, Onesimus, who was a runaway slave, he had had left his master and abandoned his master, ends up meeting Paul. And Paul shares the gospel with him, and he is radically redeemed. And so, because he was legally a slave and had illegally left his master, Paul sends him back to his master Philemon, who's also a believer and apparently a member of the church in Colossae, but he sends him back with a personal letter that Paul writes on his behalf to explain the situation to Philemon, and that's what we have in Philemon. And as we take what Paul says to this slave owner about his slave in Philemon, we begin to hear the heart of how Paul would would have us think about those under our authority. Turn back to Philemon. I want to bring a couple of passages to your attention that we read earlier this morning. Philemon chapter, well, there is no chapter there. It's just one one chapter. Chapter 1, verse 4. He says, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, he says, I could command you to do this, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you since I am such a person as Paul the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul introduces himself, and he's going to ask a request of Philemon, this Christian slave owner in the church at Colossae. Here is the request, back to verse 10. He says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. What that means is I have shared the gospel with. He has come to be a believer, and Paul often talks about those who come to Christ under his his ministry is his sons in the faith. That's the idea. I've begotten in my imprisonment who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I've sent him back to you in person. That is sending my very heart whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For for perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he's wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. 
not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. He had to add that in there. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. You see Paul's heart. He says, I'm sending him back to you, but not just as a slave, as a brother. Receive him as a brother. You see, when, when, when Paul says in this short little sentence in Colossians that these masters are to grant to your slaves justice and fairness, this is the kind of heart he's saying. There, there should be a, a great difference between the way that you treat those under your charge and the way an unbeliever would. Just as the lordship of Christ was to define the work of the Christian slave, the lordship of Christ was to define the leadership of the master. That is true of us today if we are in authority. It is to define our leadership. Now, at this point, Paul moves to the perspective or worldview, if you will, that these slave owners or masters are to have. And what's interesting is it's very similar to the worldview that he gave to slaves. And so here is that we had one command, now we have the perspective. Here's the perspective that Paul wants these masters to have. He says, rule as a slave. Rule as a slave. Verse one in the middle there, knowing. Grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing. That participle knowing draws our attention to the fact that, that there's some knowledge that these masters have to keep in mind. One central truth to be exact he says, here's what I want you to keep in mind, knowing that you too have a master, remember the same word for Lord, a Lord, a master in heaven. You are a master. So if you can see it in the Greek here, and, and they, they copy it well here in this particular verse, master starts the sentence. Masters, I'm talking to you, remember that you have a master. You yourself are a slave of another, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says a similar thing in the parallel passage again in Ephesians 6. I didn't finish the verse on purpose because I wanted to finish it here. Ephesians 6, 9, he says, And masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. And listen to this, this will sound familiar. And there is no partiality with him. Notice, in Colossians, Paul applies this phrase, no partiality to the slaves, and now in Ephesians, he applies it to the masters. The idea is, there's no partiality, and it doesn't matter who you are. In the eyes of God, your status matters zero when it comes to his commands for your life. It's no coincidence that Paul continues to come back to this theme of the Lordship of Christ over and over again. It dominated his instruction to Christian slaves and it dominates now this instruction to Christian masters. Though it may be true that for a time God has allowed these masters to have some level of authority over others, they are never to forget that they too ultimately are simply slaves of the master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we tie these two together, the instructions to slaves, the instructions to masters, here's really the key truth that emerges. The lordship of Jesus Christ brings significance to the lowliest of servants 
and humility to the most exalted authorities. Let me say that again. The lordship of Jesus Christ brings significance to the lowliest of servants and humility to the most exalted authorities. Paul says, if you're a slave, your work matters. Do it heartily unto the Lord because it's a service to Christ. And if you're a master, do your work with humility, recognizing that you are a slave of the master Jesus Christ. But you see how this worldview, how this lens is to to affect everything that we think about who we are and how we do what we do and why we do it. No matter what your status is this morning as a human being, there are clear implications for your life and for mine based on this instruction to first century slaves and masters. And as I thought about this, this, here's the truth. All of us actually have relationships in which we are under human authority and we have relationships, many of us, in which we have some level of authority. If you're a parent, you have some level of authority. Some of you are business owners or maybe have advanced in your company to where you have others working under you. And so many of us have some form of authority, but we're also under authority. And so we can apply this on both sides of the spectrum. The Lord Jesus Christ should radically transform the character of our submission to earthly authorities and our work ethic And the Lordship of Christ should radically transform the character of our leadership in every relationship in which we have delegated authority. The bottom line is the gospel and the Lordship of Jesus Christ must necessarily transform our perspective. If this has not been your worldview and you claim to be a Christian, then it must be your worldview. You must adopt this worldview that everything I do, everything that I am, is connected to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in my life. The question for us this morning is, does it? Does the Lordship of Jesus Christ really affect everything about you? Does it ever come into your consideration? And so as we bring this to a close, I just wanna bring to your attention three statements to help us apply this even further. Number one, I would challenge you this morning to evaluate your worldview. Evaluate your worldview. Can you honestly say that the gospel and the lordship of Jesus Christ and the scriptures inform your worldview? When you're sinned against, do you determine your response to that sin based on your own feelings and emotions or upon what the word of God says? It's a good test. When you experience difficulties and trials in life, do you filter and interpret those through the lens of Scripture and the character of God or your own thoughts and opinions and desires? When you think of yourself, what's the first description that comes to mind? If we said, describe yourself to us, what's the first description? Would it be, I'm a parent, husband or wife, I'm a teacher, homeschool, mom, I'm a son, I'm a daughter, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a student? Or is it Christian? I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, that affects everything else. I I am not just a dad. I'm a Christian dad. I'm not just an entrepreneur. I'm a Christian entrepreneur. I'm not just a student. I'm a Christian student. I'm not just an American citizen. I'm a Christian American citizen. And so the lordship of Christ affects my priorities in each of those areas. 
the gospel and advancing the kingdom and glory of Christ becomes my primary goal no matter what I'm doing if my worldview is really dominated by this theme of the lordship of Christ. Secondly, I would challenge you to evaluate your submission to Christ. If you're honest this morning, are there areas in your life in, in which you live by your own set of standards or by which you justify sin because of difficult people or difficult circumstances? Or are you com- content and committed to being a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, the master whose yoke is easy, whose burden is light, whose gospel is grace and peace and righteousness imputed to us, not earned by our own efforts. What a master he is. Is your life one that in increasing measure is characterized by love and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ? And does that show up in the way you respond to whatever earthly authorities you are subordinate to. Finally, I would challenge us to evaluate the character of our authority. Evaluate the character of your authority. If you have any authority over any human being in any way, evaluate that this morning. Does the quality and character of your leadership style reflect the gracious and patient way that Jesus exercises his authority over you? Or do you use threats to manipulate and coerce those under you to obey your desires. Think of it this way. If you were to share the gospel with your employees, with your children, with your spouse, would the character of your leadership make the gospel attractive or would the character of your leadership undermine the gospel that you preach? That's a great way to evaluate our authority. Could I in good conscience share the gospel with someone under me or have I so denied the character of Christ and the transforming work of the gospel that I'd be ashamed to admit it? Understand that none of us have perfect leadership. None of us have perfect submission. But on the whole, our life as Christians is to be growing further into the conformity of Christ in every area, including these And I pray that we at North Lake Bible Church, as as a whole and as individual Christians, would, would more and more become those who can honestly be identified as slaves, joyful slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a king and master he is. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are... Your sons and daughters, we are your servants, your slaves. We, we live for your glory, or at least we should and we desire to. And God, we pray this morning that you would help us to do that more faithfully. Help us to take seriously our role in this world, our role in the different relationships you've given us in life. That this life is not about us and about our desires and getting our way. This life for the Christian is about honoring the Lord Jesus Christ and making much of him and his gospel. We pray, God, that that would be the true heartbeat of our life, the true heartbeat of our church. So be with us this week as we go and seek to apply and live out these truths. We ask it in Christ's name.